Good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor. And if it's your first time joining us today, we're just so glad you're here. I hope you know that uh, we've been expecting you. I hope that when you came into this place today that you felt like you were wanted, like you were welcome, like somebody had been waiting for you the whole time. Uh, that's our goal. You know, we believe at the Gathering Church, this is a place you can belong before you believe. If you've got questions, if, you've, if you're on this journey, we want you to, to come on this journey with us. And so uh, we're just glad you're here today. I've got a couple things to share uh, before we get going this morning. I want to reiterate what Mikey said, that next Sunday there will be no 9 and 11 a.m. services at, the, at Rainbow Community School. Okay, so we're going to worship through serving. We're still worshiping next Sunday. Still make a plan to worship next Sunday, but, but make a plan to worship next Sunday in your car hearts instead of your khakis, okay? That's going to be the plan for next Sunday. And so we're so excited about Serve Asheville, man. We love this city uh, and we love to show this city how much we love them no matter what. And so that's next Sunday. And then uh, uh, what I want to talk about for a second is that um, if you've missed the news, beginning on December 23rd, that will be our Christmas Eve service, uh, we are going to be meeting at T.C. Robertson High School in South Asheville. So we are moving from Rainbow Community School to T.C. Robertson High School, and we're very excited about this move. It means more of everything, more space. Uh, more parking. It, it means it means more kids space. We're going to be able to have better, larger, cleaner, more engaging kids space. We're so excited about that. Last Sunday, we had so many kids in our 11 a.m. service that we were at a place about 10 minutes into service where we we're going to have to close down one of our classrooms. And I want you to know that that our goal at the Gathering Church is to never, ever, ever have to tell any family that there's no more room for their kids to encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're moving to T.C. Robertson, because we need bigger classrooms. We, we need a bigger auditorium. We need more seats, seats for your friends, for your family members, for your neighbors, for the people in this city who have not heard yet. Uh, we want to make room for them. And so we are so excited for all that this move will provide. And in order to do this well, we're going to be raising $75,000 over the next couple weeks. This is a bigger space. So in order to bring the same level of excellence that we do here, we need to add some to our auditorium equipment, some to our classrooms for kids. We need a lot of new signage. We're going to need to do some marketing in order to let people know that we're moving and let people know that we're coming. And so the forward offering, as we're calling it, is going to be in two Sundays on November 11th. I'm asking you to join our staff in asking God how much you should give to this movement. We're so excited for what the future holds for us at the gathering, and we hope that you'll partner with us. If you're a part of our family here, this week you got in your inbox an email with a little more information on that offering and what we're raising for and where everything is going. And so if you're the kind of person that likes the details, likes to know where, where things move and what they're moving to, uh, then open up your inbox, check, check that email. I checked only 16% of you have looked at that email so far. So let's, let's kick it up a little bit. Go open your inbox and, and there's a short video in there from me breaking down that cost uh, uh, pretty detailed. And so and if you have any more questions after that, we're happy to answer them. The bottom line 
is we want to make sure that as we move, we move well. And that as we get larger space, that we're able to fill it well. And so uh, we are so excited for the future at the Gathering Church. Well, today is week two uh, of a two-part series called Simple Gospel. Uh, Now, I believe, and this is my conviction, but I believe that my primary responsibility, that what I'm called to do above all other things, is to communicate the gospel. I believe that's what I was created for. I believe that that is the, the primary function of this stage. And so uh, we do it in- interspersed all throughout pretty much every series that we can work it into all year long. Uh, but a couple times a year, I like to just very intentionally and very specifically lay out as simply as I can what the gospel is and why it matters. And so last week, we kind of presented the theology of the gospel. What exactly is the gospel in as simple a terms as we could put it? This week, what I want to do is, is, is answer the question, why does it matter to me? Because I think, I think that theology is very important. I think that we need to understand God and the things of God as best we can while we're on this earth. But the reality is that most of the time when we're searching and when we're trying to find meaning and when we're hurting and when we're looking for hope, what we really want to know is how does this apply to me? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you why it matters to me, what, what the gospel has meant in my life, what, what, what kind of change it's brought about in my life and why I needed it. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, I hope that you're encouraged by this. I hope you're reminded of what God's done for you in your story. I hope you're reminded this morning of, of His goodness and His grace in your life and that, you're, and that you're encouraged to share your story with others because I believe uh, that in 1 Peter when it says in chapter 3, verse 15, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. See, I believe it's important to have an answer when people notice the abundance of hope in your life. Hope is not abundant in the rest of the world. But when you live in Jesus, you have an abundance of hope in your life. And people will notice it, and they will want information about it. They're going to want to know why. And so I hope this morning that you could be encouraged to share your story as your why. And if you're here this morning and you don't yet follow Jesus, uh, then I hope that, that you'll be encouraged by my story this morning and maybe begin to understand why this gospel is so important to me. So, why is the gospel so important to me? I guess I would answer with a question. Have you ever been lost? I mean, hopelessly, completely lost. The year was 1996. I was in Bush Gardens. Now, if you don't know much about me, I love theme parks. I don't know what it is, about it, it could be Dollywood, it could be, it could be Carowinds, or di- my favorite, of course, is like the mecca of theme parks, Walt Disney and his entire world, you know? I, and I just love them. I, I, love, I love the way that when you enter into a theme park, just you're, you're no longer in the real world. None of it matters. You're in a place where when you sit in a chair, it swirls around as fast as it can and drops you off cliffs. I'm just saying, that was like a roller coaster is what I was talking about, if that was confusing. 
I love them. I love theme parks. And so when I was a kid, we went all the time to these theme parks. And uh, in 1996, we went to Bush Gardens uh, in Tampa, Florida. Now, if you've never been uh, to the great, mighty Bush Gardens, the one in Tampa, Florida is kind of a, like a zoo mixed with a theme park. It's got an Africa theme. And so in 96, they had just opened a new section of Bush Gardens called Egypt. Now, I want you to picture the scene, okay? I am walking with my family through this theme park. The year is 96. Every single person is wearing pleated khaki shorts, okay? Tall white socks and white New Balance sneakers, all right? I am wearing a, uh, a polo shirt that has, uh, this section is red, this section is green, this section is blue, this section is yellow, okay? I've got a corduroy Mickey Mouse hat on, all right? I am ready to go. I, every single person in this park is currently wearing a fanny pack of some kind. All right, there are some businessmen walking around on giant gray cell phones, making important phone calls and ignoring their families. All right, that is the world that we are in presently. Okay, so it's 96, and they've opened up the Egypt section, and there's a part there called King Tut's tomb. And it was really cool. It was a walkthrough uh, exact replica of when they found King Tut's tomb. And you could like see all the artifacts and everything. And as a kid, I was uh, nine years old. And as a nine-year-old, I was obsessed with all things history. I loved it. And so as a nine-year-old, uh, I, I walked into King Tut's tomb and I, and I was just in heaven. And you walk through all these little areas, and you get to this last area, and there was this big sand pit, and it was a place where, as a kid, you could get in there and do an archaeological dig. There were little paintbrushes, and you would brush away these artifacts that were made of plaster and stuck in there that you could never remove, you know, but it was still exciting because you could brush the sand away and be like, behold what I have discovered. And so me and my sisters, we're playing in here and having a great time, but then my parents say it's time to go. And so we kind of gather our things and we get up and, and we leave King Tut's tomb. And we're kind of making our way to the next area of the park. But we get outside and we're walking in this mass of people. And I remember I've left my corduroy Mickey Mouse hat in the sand pit. This is a disaster. So like any good nine-year-old would do, I don't tell anyone. And I turn around and I sprint back into the attraction. I walked in there. I got my Mickey Mouse hat, put it happily on my head, and I walked back outside, and all I could see was a sea of pleated khaki pants. <laughs> all I could find were people that I didn't know. And I, I remember the instant feeling of panic. Did this happen to you as a kid? Do you remember being lost as a kid? Just the instant feeling of utter panic. So I sprinted in the direction that I thought I remembered my family going, looking at everybody, trying to find anyone that could possibly help me find my parents. I'm asking people. People are just walking by. I'm looking everywhere. I'm trying to remember what my dad said we were going to do next. I'm trying to remember where my sisters were asking to go. I couldn't recall any of it. And I just remember feeling in that moment, I, I remember I searched and I couldn't find them. I couldn't find what I was looking for no matter how hard I looked. And so I went back into Egypt and there was this big plaster sphinx and I sat down at his feet and I remember holding my knees, sitting at the feet of this fake sphinx and just, just feeling absolutely and hopelessly lost. Just, I remember the feeling that there is no hope 
for this moment. There is no way. I, I, on my own, I can't find my way forward. I've done everything in my power. I can't figure out what's next. And I'll never forget what happened next. I was, it's one of those moments from my childhood that is cemented in my heart because I heard my name called. I just heard it. I heard my dad calling my name, John Mark, John Mark. And I turned and through this sea of people, my father was running towards me, sprinting in my direction and ran over and grabbed me and scooped me up in his arms. And I thought that I was the only one searching. You see, I thought that it was up to me and that on my own, I was going to have to find them. And that since I, I hadn't found them, that I was going to live in Egypt forever. But my dad, my dad, you see, the second that my dad turned and saw that his son wasn't there, he began searching as frantically as I was. You see, the second that my dad realized I was no longer with him, he began pursuing me. He began running after me. And the moment that I turned my attention to him, I could see the satisfaction in his eyes. And I want you to know that I have been lost and I was hopelessly lost and then I was completely found. And that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus has done for me. The way that my father searched for me, pursued me, and found me when I was in my most hopeless place is exactly what Jesus has done in my life. I was raised in the church, in, the, in, the, in a traditional church in the deep south in Somerville, South Carolina, which is just a pleasant little town where every single person, at least in the 90s, was attending a church. It was a part of our culture. It wasn't just a religion. It wasn't, it wasn't about, it wasn't about, it, it was mostly about the culture that we lived in. And we were in a great church and, and there was a lot of good that happened there. But when I was in middle school in that church, I began to get bullied in the youth group. And there's, bullying affects your worldview in so many different ways. It, it shifts how you see yourself, how you see people, how you see the world. But I think there's something extra special when it comes from the church, when it comes from the one place where you're supposed to be safe, where you're supposed to be protected, where you're supposed to find hope, where you're supposed to find purpose, where you're supposed to find meaning. When that is the place you are made to feel the most worthless, something breaks inside of you. And that kind of continued through high school. And I, I remember it beginning to shape the way I saw the world because I think there were some really good people in that church, and our pastor was an incredible preacher who would communicate the gospel and love in such a good way, but I couldn't reconcile it with what was happening to me on Wednesday nights. I couldn't put the pieces together, and I remember being 18 years old, and, uh, or actually about 17, 16 years old, sophomore in high school, and starting to tell my parents, I'm not going to go to church with you anymore. It's, it's not my thing. I don't, I'm going to try other churches. And trying other churches, but really just trying not to commit or get engaged or be involved in one. And I remember when I was 18 years old, I still had so much connected to this world that I didn't know what to do. I didn't get in the college I wanted to go to, so I went to a small Christian college there in Charleston, Charleston Southern University, and was surrounded by more Christians. And I saw more of what I had experienced then. I was around some really genuine, amazing, authentic people who were following Jesus. And I saw a lot of people who were at a Christian college, but not living that way even remotely. And it confused me more. And I remember just feeling fed up with the whole thing. And I was 19 years old when I joined the United States Coast Guard. 
I joined the Coast Guard for a lot of different reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is because I had just bought a motorcycle that I did not have a job, and I financed the whole thing, and my dad made me return it. And uh, <laughs> I bet you didn't know you could return a motorcycle. You can if your dad is mad enough. And uh, the next day, we sat down at the Waffle House, and he told me that I needed to do something with my life, that I was on kind of a, a reckless path, and that I needed to fix it. I needed to make some decisions, and I needed to get healthy. And and so I, I looked out the window of the Waffle House and across the parking lot, there was the Armed Forces Recruiting Center. And I said, well, that looks like it'll work. And next thing I know, I'm saying, I hereby swear to so solemnly serve and protect and, and, and guard the coast of America. I don't know what the, I don't remember the whole thing. I don't think the coast was involved. <laughs> next thing you know, I'm in boot camp. And in, in boot camp, I, 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 uh, I got kicked out about six weeks in because I... Um, I was late to watch one time. because It was a long story. It wasn't my fault, to be truthful. But I got kicked out, uh, and then I, got, I had to stay in boot camp for an extra week, which was devastating. Uh, a couple months later, I'm in training, and I'm in training in Virginia uh, and Yorktown, Virginia, to be a gunner's mate. That was the job that the recruiter had talked me into because he said the word guns to an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old, and I was like, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, and so I had this emblem, uh, image of my mind of becoming Rambo, and I thought, this sounds great. And so I'm in Gunner's Mate training, and I was going to a little church in Virginia where the people were wonderful, and they were so good, and they were so kind to me, and they took care of me. But every Sunday, I, I remember sitting in service and just thinking, what is the point of this? Why am I here right now? What is this supposed to be doing for me? And I remember the moment I was in my first tour of duty on a ship in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I remember the moment I decided that none of it mattered, that church isn't real, that Christians aren't real, that it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a Southern thing, that it's not, it's, not, it's not something that brings meaning or purpose to people. And You see, when I was a kid, I would lie in bed at night awake wondering what I was here for. I always felt like I had this this thing inside of me that, that life was pushing me towards. I always felt like I had this purpose, like I had this reason, but I never had an answer for it. And I always thought church would be the place I would find it. But as a 20-year-old sitting in a pew, I thought, it's not going to be here. And so I went out into the world from there, and I just kind of gave myself over to searching in other places. And when I couldn't find answers in other places... I just gave myself over to the hurting that had been inside of me for a very long time. You see, we, we, would, we would pull into port calls, and this is what sailors do. You pull into a port call after a few weeks out at sea, and you spend three days completely and absolutely drunk. You have no idea what happens during that three-day period. Next thing you know, you're waking up, and the ship is moving again, and you're going. And This was the lifestyle that we lived, and I remember just thinking, I guess I'll try this because it's fun right now, and it makes me feel all right, and, and I'll do this. I began to bully people as they came on the ship because... I felt so hurt inside and so broken and so tore up that I just wanted somebody else to feel as hurt as I, as I felt. And so these new guys would come on the ship, and there's a real uh, long-lived tradition in the military called hazing. Um, hazing is just a fun way to say bullying, and, it, and it, is, it is existing just to make other people feel as bullied as you felt when you came on board. And, and I was just one of the guys that, that did it well, because I knew what it, what it looked like to get bullied, because I'd been bullied so much, and I... I, I remember going home at night after a day that we would prank somebody, prank somebody, but really just make somebody feel less than they were. And I remember going home at the end of the day and just feeling just absolutely empty inside. I don't know why, but I thought this would make me feel better. But instead, it's made me feel more broken and more hurt. And I, 
I can't really look at myself in the mirror anymore because I'm not sure who I'm becoming or what's happening to me. My job on the Coast Guard boat was to, be, was to do boardings, and I was becoming more and more reckless in, in my work, was, was becoming, making more and more dangerous decisions. And I don't know, but I thought that would bring me purpose to do these important jobs, to do drug busts, to, to stop human trafficking, these things that the Coast Guard does that matter so much. I thought they would give me meaning. But I remember coming home, and we would have these one-month or two-month breaks in between patrols, and and during those times, I just felt absolutely lost and abandoned and like there was nothing good inside of me anymore. I remember feeling it happen, like watching an eclipse where just the light just slowly begins to disappear. That was what I felt was happening inside of me. I remember the drinking was only in the port calls. And then after a few months, after a few patrols, it entered into those two-month breaks between patrols. And when the drunkenness was, was really bad, on um, port calls only before, now it was becoming really bad, even on days when I had to get up the next morning to go to work, and sometimes even at work. And I remember just feeling absolutely broken inside, like, like something that wasn't working the way it should, broken. And I remember feeling this creeping emptiness overtake every emotion that I had. You know, I had struggled with anxiety since middle school. Anxiety is the constant worry, the constant wondering, the constant trying to figure out why, the, the constant wondering what, what, are, what are all the things that could happen. You see, I'd struggled with that since I began to get bullied. And, but this anxiety had leaked down into my soul and it had, it had turned into a depression. And I remember lying in bed. My alarm would go off. I had to be at work at six. My alarm would go off at five. And I remember just lying there thinking, what's the point of it today? Why, would I, why am I doing this still? Why am I here? And I would go into work and I would do the motions and I would drink a lot and I would smoke a lot. And, and I would try to, try to tell jokes and laugh with the crew, but more and more it just felt empty. And this whole time I had this nagging feeling inside of me that I was made for something, but everything that I was trying was only making it grow, was only making that feeling magnify, and I could never answer it, and I could never feel it, and I felt like there was a gaping hole in my chest that I couldn't fill. And I remember one day, after a couple years of this, I was in my apartment, and we were, we were just a, a couple weeks out from leaving on another deployment, and I remember thinking, there is no point to this. I remember thinking that the hurting in me was so constant, so chronic, so consistent, that it was not going to stop. I remember looking back over the last couple of years, and wh whatever I tried to make that hurting get better, it only got worse. And I thought, if this hurting is just going to get worse throughout the course of my life, I don't think I can bear that. I don't think I can live that way. I don't think I could... I, if it's, what's it going to be like five years from now? Ten years from now, I began to look at the relationships in my life. And all I could see were people that I'd hurt. was pain that I'd brought on those around me. And I, I realized, what, why am I here if the only people in my life are being hurt by me? And I remember waking up some days and just feeling nothing. Just nothing. Just like I was, like I was on, on some kind of an anesthesia. Just Just blank. And so one night I was in my apartment and I'd been drinking and, and these, these same things were going through my mind because they were always going through my mind. And, and I just thought, there, 
it would be a lot better. It would be a lot better for everybody if I wasn't here anymore. It would be a lot better for me because I wouldn't have to feel this hurt anymore. It would be a lot better for the people in my life because I wouldn't hurt them anymore. I know what to do. So I took my, I had a 45 Colt revolver and I loaded it and I pulled the trigger. I committed. I didn't write a note. I didn't, I didn't think anybody would need to read it. <clears throat> it didn't go off. The, I only had one bullet and, the, and it was a misfire. And so I remember that night laying on the floor just feeling so, like such a failure that I couldn't even do this right. A couple weeks later, we were getting ready to get underway for our patrol. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I was in those two weeks. I, I didn't know what I did. I was like shaking because I did the whole time because I just didn't know what do you do now? What happens next? What, what, is, what is the point of any of this? What am I going to go out there and do that's going to matter? You know, we, we, and so I, I'm on this boat and we're getting ready to get underway. And, uh, and I make one more phone call before the patrol. And it's to a friend of mine who had been kind of an anchor for me. Like one person that I could see hope in her life. Like I could see joy in her life. I could see purpose in her life. And, and she made me feel like I had a little bit of that whenever I hung around her. We, we met in college at Charleston Southern. And, and I just... I was infatuated with her from day one, if I'm going to be honest with you. I just, and for some reason, throughout my depression, throughout my brokenness, throughout my lostness, I always thought that, that she would, somehow I would end up with her, and that was just the dumbest thing anybody ever thought because of who I was in that season, but I believed it, and so I maintained that relationship, and I called her because I needed a little bit of joy before I got underway, and, and you know, she said, John Mark, I want you to know that I care about you, but... But, but when I talk to you, all I can see is how broken you are and how hurting you are and how desperately you're searching. And I, and I want you to know that I know what you're searching for. And the only thing that's going to fill this for you is a relationship with Jesus. And, and you've got to find that. You've got to search it. You've got to figure it out. And until you do, I don't know if I can be around you anymore because it's becoming too hard for me. And that was that. That was Rael. I did marry her some years later. But... Uh, but I, I got on that boat, and for the first time in my life, I realized how lost I had been. I was just like that kid sitting at the foot of that sphinx. I had searched everywhere, but it was meaningless. I, I didn't know where to look. I didn't know what direction to go in. I didn't know who to find. And so on my own, I'd done everything I could, and all I had discovered was that I was hopelessly lost with no direction, with nowhere to go. And so I sat down, and I just thought to myself, maybe I'm not as lost as I thought I was. Maybe somebody's been looking for me while I was out doing all this searching. And so we got on that boat and I opened up the Bible and I began to read it. I began to swallow it whole. I read the whole thing in 60 days, cover to cover. I read it beginning to end. And here's what I expected to find in that book. I expected judgment. I expected rules. I expected, I expected to find a God that was angry, that was angry at me, that was ashamed of me. I expected to find a bully because when I was in the church, I had seen bullies. That was what I thought I would see. But instead, I saw a picture of a God who desperately loved his children and wanted relationship with them. Throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, I saw a picture of children who were lost and a father who would go find them. And children who were lost and a father who would go find them. I thought it was a book of judgment, but what I discovered was it was a book of redemption. I remember getting through the Old Testament, starting to feel changed and transformed by it. And then I got into the New Testament. 
And there was this story uh, in Luke uh, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 15, it says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. See, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. I realized that my Jesus had been looking for me since the moment that I walked away. I realized that as lost as I thought I was, that he always knew where I was and he was always in pursuit of me. I realized that 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 desire that I had for meaning and purpose was put there by God for God and that he wanted to fill it for me. And I led myself to Jesus in the bottom of a 210 foot medium endurance cutter. I put my face to the plate and I said, dear God, I give everything that I have to you forever. Just fill me up. And so let me tell you, a little bit of what Jesus did for me. You see, there was this story in, in, in John chapter 8. Uh, and I think it perfectly describes the moment that I met Jesus. Because you see, Jesus found me. I thought that I was lost, but Jesus found me. Uh, it used to be kind of a colloquialism in the church. Hey, man, you find Jesus... <laughs> You find Jesus yet? As if he was ever lost in the beginning. I realized that Jesus found me. In John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11, there's this story of a woman who's caught in adultery. And the Pharisees take her to Jesus to try and make him compromise his compassionate nature. So they want him to agree with them that she should die for her sins. You see, here's, here, can I get spiritual for a moment? There's an evil spirit over the Pharisees. These were good men of God that an evil spirit had led to uh, be judgmental, to, to always be questioning, to always be uh, bullying those around them. And, and the spirit of the Pharisees was the spirit that I thought ran the Bible. I thought the Bible was like the Pharisees are in this story. I thought it was just pointing out my sins, like it was just showing me all the things that I'd done wrong, like it was just there to help me understand how lost I was. But the Bible's not the Pharisees, it's Jesus. In this story... It says, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. You see, the story tells us that Jesus was never there to judge us, but rather he was there to be our advocate. These Pharisees are there judging this woman wanting to enter, wanting to make her see how horrible her sin is. That's what the enemy does to you. That's what he does to me. He shows us our sin. He makes us dwell in our shame and our guilt and tells us we're not good enough for God, that we're not good enough for relationship with him. Tells us that we'll never be able to stand in his presence again. But Jesus doesn't focus on our sin. He becomes our advocate. He starts to stand up for us, to get in it on our behalf. It says again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Jesus meets her exactly where she is, in her place of shame and in her place of sin. And that is where Jesus found me. I was in my lowest place, hoping to find something good the first time I opened up the Bible, and I saw it. And I expected these words inside to feel like the Pharisees reminding me of everything I'd done wrong, but what I found was the words 
of Jesus. After all the Pharisees left, they left in shame. Jesus said, woman, where are they? Has nobody here condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And I imagine, and it's important to understand this, that at this moment, Jesus was doing what none of them were willing to do. He was on the ground and he was looking her in the eyes and said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. We can know God right now as we are. We can enter into relationship with Jesus with no condemnation while we are in our lowest place, just like this woman was, just like I was. You don't have to get it together first. You don't have to be okay today. You don't have to, you don't, Jesus doesn't wait for you to get cleaned up and walk into the temple. He goes to the place where you've been sinning, where you're on the ground, where your accusers are telling you how bad you are, and that's the place he enters relationship with you. You get to know him exactly as you are. I made no steps of recovery from the person I had become before I met Jesus. I was only able to do those things because I met Jesus. That's who he is. You are so important to him. And he wants relationship with you right now exactly the way that you are. And because of Jesus, I have found freedom. I have found freedom. There's a story in uh, Luke 4 where Jesus is in a church and he reads some scripture and he declares that it's all about him. And the passage that he reads is Isaiah chapter 61. And it says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me, this is important, He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to put the pieces back together, to find every piece of your broken heart and to make it whole again. That's what he came to do, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from darkness the prisoners. I don't know about you, but I felt like a prisoner to darkness. I couldn't see light anymore. I didn't know what it looked like. I didn't know what it felt like. I was living my life in the Caribbean and could not feel the sun on my face. And Jesus came to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion and bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, an oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting for the Lord for the display of of his splendor. See, Jesus didn't just come into the world that we would be able to live forever. Now, I know we kind of get hung up on that sometimes because, well, eternal life is a pretty big deal, and that's great. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus, he beats death on your behalf, and you got heaven waiting for you. That's good news. But for a long time, we made Christianity about either going to heaven or not going to heaven, and it's more than that. Because Jesus has done something bigger for us than that. He's not just getting us into heaven. He's giving us freedom today where we stand. He wants to heal your broken heart today. To put every piece back together. Jesus knows where every piece of your broken heart is. And he wants to bind it up. He wants to heal it. In a relationship with Jesus and in a life following him alongside his people, you need to know you can find joy again. And maybe you're in a place like the one I was in where you don't know if joy is ever something you ever knew in the first place, 
and that you will ever feel again. And I promise you, in Jesus, you can find freedom from that lie and you will find joy again. Jesus said He came to turn our mourning into joy and our despair into praise. That was not an allegory or a colloquialism. Jesus meant He wants to take your sadness and give you joy. And that's what He did for me. See, I struggled with anxiety and depression for most of my life until I was 22 years old. I gave my life to Jesus at age 21, at the end of age 21, and began a year-long journey towards freedom from the depression that I was so deep in. I need you to know that it didn't happen the moment I said yes to Jesus. Depression takes a little bit more work than that. It's chemical sometimes. It digs its roots in really deep, and you've got to work hard to dig them out. It was a journey for me. I had to lean into it. I had to retrain my thought process. But I do want you to know that the very first day I gave my life to Jesus, even though I was depressed, there was something new for me. It was hope. I had this light of hope shining in front of me that gave me the energy every day to begin working towards freedom. And you need to know that hope that I had, that I could be free from it, you can have as well in a relationship with Jesus. The hope that I had that led me to be free from depression, I want you to know that right now, every day I wear a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That I still struggle sometimes. I have bad days where anxiety begins to creep in, but that anxiety won't find its way back into depression for me because now I know where my hope is. Now I know where tomorrow needs to be. Now I've got vision. I've got purpose. And now my Jesus takes my garment of despair and throws it out and replaces it with praise. And that's what He can do for you as well. Whatever it is you need to find freedom from, Jesus wants to give it to you. Maybe it's sin, just a a lifelong pattern of making the wrong choices. Or maybe it's not choices. Maybe it's addiction. Or maybe it's struggles like depression or or even a deep-seated narcissism. You can have freedom from it. Jesus came so that you could have freedom, so that I could have freedom. He came to rebuild ruins long devastated inside of us, to take our ashes and replace them with a crown of beauty. To set us up as an oak of righteousness. It's one of the most important verses, I think, in all of Scripture where he says, I, I, I come to set them up as oaks of righteousness. It's a little bit, it's a little bit uh, of too much metaphor maybe to, to grasp it on the first time, but I want you to imagine that at this moment, before I found Jesus, I was like a branch broken on the ground. But his desire for me was not that I would be something dead, lifeless, and ready to be scooped away, but that I would have life, that I would be strong, that I would be planted, that I would be rooted, and that I would provide for those around me. That's what an oak tree does. See, Jesus doesn't just want to put you back together. He wants to give you purpose. He wants to make you an oak of righteousness. See, once I found freedom... I discovered what I had been wanting to know my entire life, and that was that I found purpose. I have a purpose. As a young man, the biggest question that kept me awake at night was, why? Why am I here? What is the point of all of this? What value do I add to this world, to the people around you? If you look at the journey of most young men, we're just out there, and young women, just out there just trying to figure out what value we add to this world. What legacy will we leave behind? What, what will we do to affect those around us? We're trying to figure it out, but Jesus has the answer the entire time. Now, I never, never felt like I would know what it meant to be happy until I had an answer to this question of why. Why? 
Now, because of Jesus, I know my why. I have a purpose. Isaiah says that Jesus will restore us and set us up as an oak of righteousness, that he would take our flaky, sinful nature and make it into something strong, sturdy, and resilient. And in verse 4, it says he's going to give us a job to do. It says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Notice the change of the tense. In the beginning, he says, I, I, I. I'm going to turn your mourning into joy. I'm going to, I'm going to do all this for you. But then it's, it talks about he's going to, once he's done that for you, he's going to set you up as an oak of righteousness, and the tense changes. It says they. It says now they've got a job to do. Now they're going to rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated, that they'll renew the cities that have been devastated for generations. I've got a purpose in Jesus. I've got a job to do in Jesus. Jesus reads this scroll and says it's being fulfilled before you today. He came to break the captives free, to bind up those brokenhearted and to turn into mourning, into praise, and to set those same people who were once broken, who were once hurting, who were once in despair up as oaks of righteousness, and then to send them to rebuild the ancient ruins of places long devastated. I'm a heat-seeking missile now for devastation because Jesus has restored the devastation in my life, has given me hope, has given me purpose, has given me meaning, and He said, now it's your turn. Now it's up to you. Go find the, the cities that are in absolute ruin that people have said it can't be built up again, it can't be fixed it's a ruin and leave it. I want you to know that when we came here to start this church, I met with 27 churches asking them to support us in this mission. 24 of them told us, don't go to Asheville. It's not going to work. It's a ruined city. It's a graveyard for churches. But I said, that's why I'm going there with a resurrected king. We will rebuild the cities that have been ruined and long devastated. We will do it. You see, because of Jesus, I'm making a difference. And I've never had more satisfaction with life in my life. Have you ever heard of the hierarchy of needs? It's something that the non-Christian sociologists uh, came up with to describe what motivates people. You see, for a long time, the highest uh, need that motivates us on this hierarchy of needs was self-actualization. The ability to really know who we are. And the Bible agrees with that. It talks over and over again about purpose and about longing and all of that. But you know, recently, they've updated the hierarchy of needs. Yeah, they changed it. It's not enough to just know who you are. Now there's one more need. It's called transcendence. It means to start to help others discover who they are. You see, what sociologists are figuring out about people is what the Bible has been saying for thousands of years. We were created to know God, to find freedom, to have a purpose, and to make a difference in that purpose. And I want you to know that because of Jesus, because of the purpose He's given me, I am making a difference. When I thought I was worthless and meaningless and nothing, and that I was never going to add value to anybody in my life, it's 10 years later, and you need to know that now I know that in Jesus and through Jesus, that He will continue to use me to change lives for Him. You can make a difference too. You can make a difference too. I can see from the beginning of my story that God was leading me here to this church to do exactly what I'm doing now. That all these broken parts that were in me, He has changed and put back together and He's using them for the good of the purpose He's given me. 
All my gifts are activated and come into focus serving His church. And I get to lead others to realize the same. And now I know how Paul felt when he wrote to a young pastor he was mentoring named Timothy. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who's given me strength that He considered me trustworthy, appointing me to His service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. So now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the one and only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to know that just like Paul, I know who I was then and I know who I am now. I know who I thought I was. I know how broken I was. I know how hurting I was. I know how worthless I was. I know how hurtful I was. I know how evil I was. And now in him, I know I am an oak of righteousness that He will use me to rebuild this ruined city. That, that our God now has given me a purpose. He has given me meaning. He has used me even though He shouldn't be using me. And so I will praise His name with everything I've got for the rest of eternity. Will you join me, church? Come on, somebody. This is my story. This is why Jesus matters to me. This is why, just like Paul, I just want to praise God with everything. Because He chose me. And He saved me. And He turned my mourning to joy. And He gave me purpose. And He gave me a life that fills me up. And you know what? It's not always easy. It's not always easy to follow Him. It's hard sometimes. But I know how little I deserve it. And like Paul, it gets to me from time to time. But it's better than anything I could have ever imagined and you can have that too let's pray this morning heavenly father i thank you so much for for your story god this is your story this is who you are you have done it a billion times before and you will do it a billion times again is who you are you are the god who never stops looking you are the god who comes for us when we think we can't do it anymore when we feel lost and hopeless, you're the God. You're the God who comes in on our behalf and says, no, I found you. You're mine. No, I will save you. I will, I will make you something you never thought you could be. You are the God who gives us a reason. God, we worship you. We honor you, Lord. I humble myself in your presence today, God. I bow down before you. You are so good. You are so good to me. And so, God, I just ask that you would be glorified in this church. Be glorified in our lives, God. Be glorified in, in every moment that you give us from this moment forward. Praise your name, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.